0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 52, the book of Acts chapters 24 and 25. Our last lesson dealt primarily with Paul's defense. To the ludicrous legal charges that were made by the Sanhedrin as the trial was being held in front of Governor Felix in the provincial seaside capital of Caesarea Maritima. Now, what made the charges all the more farcical is that as she had it's nearly impossible to to, to define what the charges are. The only discernible complaints were that Paul was a thorn in the side of the high priest, who's also head of the Sanhedrin, and that he was disturbing the peace by his mere presence in Jerusalem, and that he attempted to defile the holy sanctuary, but he didn't succeed. And for this, the Sanhedrin wanted Paul dead. Now, before we reread a small part of Acts chapter 24, I want to reiterate that in reality, The issues against Paul had little to do with anything theological, but rather that Paul appeared to be a traitor of sorts to some movable definition of what it meant to be a Jew. And on the surface, this stemmed from his close contacts with Gentiles in the foreign lands of the Diaspora. Now the hypocrisy of such a complaint however, is nearly laughable. It was primarily the Sadducee party that was so upset with Paul. And the Sadducees were Jewish aristocrats who maintained the coziest of relationships with the Gentile Romans so as to attain and maintain their wealth, status, and power. In fact, here we have the leader of the Sadducees, the high priest, being an informant the Romans that Paul was inciting a revolt against them. So what's causing this hatred of Paul if there's nothing concrete we can pin it on? We listed a few practical reasons last week which included the fact that at one time Paul was either a, a junior member of the Sanhedrin or at least was in the employ of the Sanhedrin in some official capacity and when he was sent to Damascus to arrest some members of the way. Paul not only didn't do it, he turned and he became a member of the way. The humiliation and shame of such a thing for the high priest and the institution of the Sanhedrin had not been forgotten even though many years had passed since then. However, the true underlying reason for this hatred is still hard to put your finger on because it's invisible. These corrupt leaders of the Jews were in a state of spiritual blindness. The proof is their incomprehensible charges against Paul, the lengths to which the Jewish high court was willing to go to rid themselves of this pest, including outright murder, Something for which according to the Torah there is no atonement possible and then there's the illogical nature of the grievances against Paul that befuddled both the Roman commander Lysias and now Governor Felix this irrational hatred of Paul and what he stood for that's rooted in spiritual blindness has never ceased to this day And it's present both within modern Judaism and within the enemies of the Jews. This spiritual blindness is actually a backlash to the reality and advent of Messiah Yeshua. And it was prophesied and it was spoken about in a number of passages in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. So if indeed our good news is veiled, it's veiled only to those that are in the process of being lost. They do not come to trust because the God of the Alam Hazah, the present world, has blinded their minds in order to prevent them from seeing the light shining from the good news about the glory of the Messiah, who is the image of God. Paul says the God of the present world has done this act of blinding some people's minds to the truth of the gospel. Who's the God of the present world? Satan. But we are also told by Paul, interestingly, that this spiritual blindness is the will of Jehovah, God, Yeshua's Father for those who reject his son. Listen to this in Romans 11, 7 and 8. What follows is that Israel has not attained the goal for which she's striving. The ones chosen have obtained it, but the rest have been made stone-like. Just as the Tanakh says, God has given them a spirit of dullness, eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, right down to the present day. So spiritual blindness is not some catchy saying. It's a real condition. And when we observe this irrational hatred against Paul here in Acts, and when we watch this same irrational hatred against Israel and the Jewish people in our time, just know that it's God-willed and Satan-led. And this is all due to the rejection of God's Messiah. I think the Exodus story of Pharaoh and his hardened heart that was both as a result of his rejection of the God of Israel and of God acting upon his unrepentant heart. I think this is the pattern for what happens to all who set their minds against Messiah Yeshua. Yet as frustrated as Paul would get, and and I know many of us get, as we try to tell others about God's love for them, their need for Him, we need to keep in mind something that Paul knew. Each soul that is saved, Jew or Gentile, is truly a miracle. Because the forces against such a thing ever occurring are so powerful and pervasive that you are saved, that I am saved is a miracle of the highest order and it's something we must never take for granted. That Israel has survived this irrational hatred of a a billion or more, sworn enemies, a number that grows daily, is also a miracle of the highest order. That you and I are hated for our faith and that Israel is hated for their mere existence comes with the territory. And we must be willing to accept that rather than fretting about it. The irony is that as believers, we are hated because of our acceptance of Christ. And Romans 11 tells us that Israel's hated because of their rejection of Him. Well, Paul continues his defense in verse 17. Let's reread that section of Acts 24 right now. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. We're going to start at verse 17, so if you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're at page 1395. Acts chapter 24, we're going to start reading at verse 17. Follow along, please. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring a charitable gift to my nation to offer sacrifices. It was in connection with the latter that they found me in the temple. Now I had ceremonially purified. I was not with the crowd, I was not causing a disturbance, but some Jews from the province of Asia, they ought to be here before you to make a charge if they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what crime they found me guilty of when I stood in front of the Sanhedrin other than this one thing which I shouted out when I was standing among them. I am on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. But Felix, who had rather detailed knowledge of things connected with the way, put them off saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I'll decide your case. He ordered the captain to keep Shaul in custody, but to let him have considerable liberty, not prevent any of his friends from taking care of his needs. Now, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Shaul, and he listened to him as he spoke about trusting in the Messiah, Yeshua. But when Paul began to discuss righteousness, self-control, the coming judgment, Felix became frightened, and he said, You know what? For the time being, go away. I'll send for you when I get a chance. At the same time, he hoped that Shaul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him rather often, kept talking with him. After two years, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant the Judeans a favor, he left Shaul still a prisoner. Here Paul confirms what we've discussed in past lessons. It's been several years since he'd been to Jerusalem. His journey there currently had to do with celebrating Shavuot, Pentecost, and bringing charitable gifts to his people. And he came appropriately to sacrifice. Thus, obviously, he had every reason to be at the temple. He didn't come to disturb the peace. He came in obedience to the Torah. To sacrifice on the occasion of Shavuot. Now, many commentators say that Paul brought these charitable gifts for the Messianic believers, and no doubt they were some of the beneficiaries of these gifts. But unbelievers were benefited as well. As the wording's clear, that this was a general donation to his nation, not to a specific group of Jews. Not all the funds that he brought were charitable gifts. A major portion, probably a completely separate portion, was the half-shekel temple tax that every Jew, regardless of where they lived, was supposed to contribute annually for the operation and the upkeep of the temple. In verse 17, Shaul points out that he didn't defile the temple. He had purified himself before entering it. Now, while the crowd that wanted to kill Paul specifically mentioned him bringing a Gentile into the prohibited areas of the Temple Mount, that charge seems to have evaporated. It was just an unsubstantiated rumor in the first place. So the accusation of the Sanhedrin that Paul was trying to defile the temple seems to have changed from Paul intentionally bringing an unclean Gentile into the temple area and thus defiling it to the only possibility that remained. Paul himself had to have been considered as unclean. So Paul refutes that charge. We read earlier in Acts 21 how Paul had indeed paid to purify himself and four other believing Jews as well. Now this issue of automatic uncleanness for Jews coming to Jerusalem from the Diaspora was a standard one because Jews believed that proximity to Gentiles brought defilement upon them and thus when they came to Jerusalem with their sacrifices they first had to be purified before they could even enter the Temple Mount and by the way This understanding needs to be carried over to every visit that a diaspora Jew would make to the temple. So for instance, when they came for a pilgrimage for Sukkot or for Passover, they necessarily had to come a few days early so that they could purify, go through the waiting process, and have a priest certify that they're now clean. However, this was not the case for the Holy Land Jews. Jews coming from the Galilee, for instance, didn't face the same requirement. Well, in the next two verses, Paul is essentially claiming that the reason he is on trial is because when he was in custody in Jerusalem and standing there before the Sanhedrin, that he shouted out, that he believed in the resurrection of the dead. Now what's left unsaid is that the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection so they vehemently disagreed with Paul. But honestly, I think Paul is purposely laying out a red herring here. That is, while what he says is true, that's not the reason he's on trial. I mean, my goodness, the vast majority of Jews everywhere believed in resurrection of the dead because that's what the Sadducees taught and so did the synagogues. So Paul was in the majority. He wasn't being rebellious or heretical in what was actually a nearly universal belief about resurrection among the Jews what this statement did do was to tell Felix that not only were there were whatever grievances that the Sanhedrin might have against him in regard to some minor nuances of Jewish law but that all other charges had no basis whatsoever either and Felix's only interest would have been in assuring that Paul wasn't a political dissident who was fomenting trouble against Rome now Felix, as judge had now heard from accuser and defendant and it was time for him to make a ruling his choice was postpone the verdict instead he said he wanted to hear from commander Lysias he wanted to get his opinion on the matter An opinion, which he's already stated in writing in the letter that we read back in chapter 25, or rather chapter 23. And his opinion was Paul had done nothing deserving of jail, let alone death. So Paul would continue to be under arrest, although his conditions improved, as he was allowed to have as many visitors as he wanted, and they would be allowed to provide him with food and creature comforts. Matter of fact, we don't ever hear of Lysias coming to the hearing, which leads me to speculate that Felix was just trying to buy time, as he had a different agenda than meeting out justice. Well, some days passed. Felix again wanted to speak with Paul, but this time the governor was accompanied with his, by his wife Drusilla. Now the Western text of the New Testament tells us that it was Drusilla who wanted Paul held because Drusilla wanted to meet him in order to hear what he had to say. Now it might surprise some Bible students to learn that there wasn't just one version of New Testament documents in circulation in ancient times. In other words, There was no officially recognized, and there still isn't, original version of the New Testament books. To this day, there isn't. There are a number of ancient manuscripts, most of them Greek, not all, but most. There are differences among them. Academics call these various sources text types and among them are the alexandrian the western the byzantine and there's there's others and i don't want you to let these names scare or confuse you these are but the various early versions of new testament manuscripts that operate much like various english translations like we have today like the King James Version, the New American Standard, the Revised Standard Version, the complete Jewish Bible. They're just different versions. Each of them have their own advocates, they each have their strengths, and they have their weaknesses. Depending on where you were located in the ancient world, you might choose a version that was formulated locally. So, for instance, the so-called Western text which was widely circulated in Italy and Gaul, as well as the northern part of Africa uh, with Egypt, that can be traced back to the end of the 2nd century. It was used by some early church fathers, and notable such as Marcion and Tatian and Irenaeus and Tertullian and Cyprian. It was not a New Testament like we think of it but it did have some of the same documents that were eventually used to form the New Testament. Well, Felix's wife Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I. And as of the time of this meeting with Paul, she was only in her late teens. Because her father Agrippa considered himself a Jew, then Drusilla was seen as a daughter of a Jew, therefore herself a Jew. In fact, at an early age, she was betrothed to a Gentile crown prince, but because he refused to convert to Judaism, the marriage was called off. Later on, her brother, Agrippa II, gave her in marriage to the king of amessa but when drusilla was only 16 years old felix persuaded her to abandon that king and become felix's third wife now interestingly drusilla produced a son for felix and named him agrippa the 3rd but he died a premature death in the infamous eruption of mount vesuvius Well, the so-called Jewish Drusilla then sat with her husband, Felix, and Paul told them about Yeshua and why they ought to trust in him. Why would Drusilla even want to hear about this? Because at this time, which is about 58 AD, the way was still seen by Gentiles and Jews alike as but one sect of the many sects of Judaism. So this may have been little more than an information exchange for Drusilla. Well, when Paul's telling of the gospel advanced to a discussion of its practical implications such as practicing righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, meaning the end of days, we're told it frightened Felix. He didn't want to hear anymore. This discussion had taken a turn that the cruel and greedy Felix found eh, most uncomfortable. Is that not the way it is for us all? You know, it is so easy to speak glowingly to one another about righteousness and holiness and the end of days in theory in theory but when it gets down to things that God says we must do changes in our lives we must make duties and obligations that God says we have as believers Consequences for our faith that we must bear unpleasant, even horrific realities that we may be personally swept up into we're not so sure we want to hear it anymore because it's getting a little bit too personal those warm and fuzzy feelings turn to fear and apprehension that is why most of today's mega are built upon hearing only about God's love and mercy. Nothing else. His desire for you to attain all your dreams and to have prosperity. And only rarely will the sermon turn to God's wrath, your sins that God hates, and your obligations to Him as a disciple of Yeshua. The idea that there are there are unchanging absolutes we must follow in obedience. It's not our option. And that those absolutes are found in the Torah. That God determines our righteousness based on His law and on the prophets. We can't define it on our own. And that never in history, people, as God's people, Old or New Testaments, escaped persecution. But rather, God expects us, in faith, to go through persecution if necessary, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, as an example to others. But we also find in verse 26, that part of the ulterior motive that Felix had for hanging on to Paul, was hoping for a bribe now we tend to think of a bribe as an illegal or shady under the table transaction back then a bribe was usual and customary even if asking for one out loud wasn't considered polite or gracious Felix was hoping that Paul would raise a good amount of money and offer it as homage to Felix's greatness and very likely then Felix in turn would have found in Paul's favor. Paul knew this, of course. And I suspect with all of his contacts Paul could have done it. But he had bigger fish to fry. He wanted to be sent to Rome. He wanted to stand before the emperor. Even if prison was the price of the ticket to get there. Well, this chapter ends with the notice that after two more years of Paul's imprisonment, Festus replaced Felix. Now, when leaving his office, Felix had the authority to let Paul go. He didn't. It is clear that Felix had never found a single cause to convict Paul. Instead, he apparently wanted to leave his office with the Judeans and the Sanhedrin, seeing him in a favorable light. So, he let Paul languish in prison as a favor to them. Seems that Paul spent much time in prisons. But he didn't let time pass by in idleness. You see, many of his letters that form a major part of the New Testament are ascribed to to his time behind bars Colossians, Philippians, Timothy, Philemon just there's others so it is clear that he was given the materials and given great latitude for the most part so that he could write those epistles often with a scribe doing the actual writing as Paul dictated and then those letters were allowed to go out of the prison and into circulation Okay, let's move on to Acts chapter 25. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 25 and follow along with me. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're still on page 1395. 1395. Three days after Festus had entered the province, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. There the head Kohanim, the high priest, and the Judean leaders informed him of the case against Shaul, Paul. They asked him to do them the favor of having the man sent to Jerusalem. They had plotted to have him ambushed and killed en route. Festus replied that Paul was being kept under guard in Caesarea and that he was about to go there shortly himself. So, he said, let competent men among you come down with me and press charges against the man if he's done something wrong. Well, After staying with them at most eight or ten days, Festus went down to Caesarea, and on the following day, he took his seat in court and ordered Shaul to be brought in. When he arrived, the Judeans who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him which they could not prove. In reply, Shaul said, I've committed no offense, not against the Torah to which the Jews hold, not against the temple, not against the emperor. But Festus, wanting to do the Judeans a favor, asked Paul, Would you be willing to go up to Jerusalem and be tried before me there on these charges? Shaul replied, I am standing right now in the court of the emperor, and this is where I should be tried. I have done no wrong to the Judeans, as you very well know. If I am a wrongdoer, if I have done something for which I deserve to die, then I am ready to die. But if there is nothing to these charges which they are bringing against me, no one can give me to them just to grant a favor. I appeal to the emperor. Then Festus, after talking with his advisors, answered, You have appealed to the emperor, you will go to the emperor. Well, after some days... King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. And since they were staying on there for some time, Festus had the opportunity to acquaint the king with Shaul's situation. There's a man here, he said, who was left behind in custody by Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, the head Kohanim and the elders of the Judeans informed me about him and asked me to pronounce judgment against him. My answer to them was that it is not the custom with the Romans to give up an accused man just to grant a favor before he has met his accusers face to face and had the opportunity to defend himself against the charge. So when they arrived here with me, I did not delay, but I took my seat in the court the next day and I ordered the man brought in. Well, when the accusers stood up, instead of charging him with some serious crime, as I had expected, they disputed with him about certain points of their own religion, particularly about somebody called Yeshua, who had died, but who Paul claimed was alive. Being at a loss to know how to investigate such questions, I asked him if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and be tried on these matters there. But since Paul appealed to be kept in custody and have his case decided by his imperial majesty, I ordered him held until I could send him to the emperor. Agrippa said to Festus, Well, I myself have been wanting to hear this man. Tomorrow, he replied, you'll hear it. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with much pageantry. They entered the audience room accompanied by military commanders and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Shaul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all of you here with us, do you see this man? The whole Judean community has complained to me about him, both in Jerusalem and here, crying he shouldn't be allowed to remain alive but I discovered that he'd done nothing that deserves a death sentence now when he himself appealed to the emperor I decided to send him however I have nothing specific to write to his majesty about him that's why I've brought him before all of you and especially before you King Agrippa so that after we've examined him I might have something to write it seems irrational to me to send a prisoner without also indicating what the charges are against him Festus was a different sort of fellow than Felix. He was known as a good, thoughtful administrator, and so the first thing he did upon arriving in the area was to take up in order to take up his new assignment was to go up to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish leadership. This would have him meeting mostly with the high priest and his family, some of the most senior priests and other wealthy aristocrats of the Sadducean party. After acquainting himself with the various issues of concern for those who need rule, the Jewish leaders wasted no time in bringing up the matter of Paul. Even after two years in prison, the Sanhedrin wasn't satisfied. They still wanted Paul eliminated. They asked Festus if perhaps Paul couldn't be brought to Jerusalem for trial. You know, it seemed like an instant enough request essentially merely a formality, and no doubt the Jewish leaders counted on Festus not knowing the history behind this situation. Their goal was to have Paul assassinated before any trial could happen. That's fascinating to me, that this determination to kill Shaul continued on for so long. But you know, spiritual blindness has no limits on time or extent. We know from other documents that Jerusalem was nearly in a state of anarchy at this time as the Zealots and the Sakari were running rampant murdering Jews who didn't meet their unwritten litmus test for proper Jewish loyalty and behavior. I have little doubt that it was the demands of these extremist zealots and saccari that kept this issue alive, that is, to deal with Paul. Because since Paul's experience with Christ 20 years earlier, a number of high priests had come and gone, as on average, high priests only stayed in office for around 2 or 3 years. So anyone Paul had ever offended was no longer in office. Well, the high priest at this moment was a fellow named Ishmael ben Fiabi, a very unpopular high priest. He was an old man. And this was actually his second term as a high priest, the first coming 40 years earlier. Let me repeat something I've said before, but it's important to know. When understanding these times, Ben-Fiabi was the current in a long succession of illegitimate high priests, according to the law of Moses, even though these high priests insisted that they upheld the Torah. While refusing to recognize the traditions of the elders that the Pharisees honored. So, the insistence of the Sanhedrin to continue prosecuting Paul, persecuting is more like it, was strictly a political accommodation by the high priest to the most radical Jews in Judea. Now, thankfully, Festus saw no need. To move Paul and have the trial in Jerusalem. I imagine that Festus had a suspicion that something wasn't quite right in this case. And no doubt he used this request in order to establish his authority and make it clear just who was in charge and who was going to bow down to who. I mean, he told the Jewish leaders they had have to come to Caesarea to continue the case against Paul. Now, since Felix had been removed from office because he was unable to control the violence of Jewish militants, mainly in Jerusalem, Festus would show these Jews a firm hand from the moment he began to rule by denying their request. Well, at the same time, Festus showed respect to these Jewish leaders by staying on in Jerusalem for several more days, getting to know them, being available for discussions. He was showing himself to be a pretty wise leader. And he knew that his success or failure would hinge on the level of quiet that he could secure in Jerusalem. And this quiet began with the Jewish Leadership seeing him as a reasonable man who wanted to understand Jewish politics, Jewish sensitivities, so that there could be peace. So, when he returned to Caesarea, the first thing on his agenda was to attend to this matter of Paul, since it seemed quite urgent to the Jewish leadership of Jerusalem. Well, so the next day, After his arrival in his provincial capital, the trial that Felix never concluded was again opened. Well, The scene unfolded very similarly to what had happened over two years earlier. Many charges were brought against Paul, but no evidence was presented. So Paul responded similarly to how he'd responded two years ago. He just denied all the charges. He was careful to deny them in an articulate and a structured way that addressed each area of accusation. First of all, he says he did no wrong against the law of the Jews. Next, he claims he committed no wrong against the temple. And finally, he says he did no wrong against Caesar. So, what he claimed was... He had not violated Halakha, Jewish law. In other words, his Jewishness remained intact. This was not about violating the actual biblical Torah because essentially he was addressing the concerns of the Pharisees who went by oral traditions, not so much the written Torah. Then he addressed the concerns of the Sadducees, whose headquarters and their area of control was the temple. He says he did nothing wrong there. And lastly, he said he broke no Roman law, and therefore he had not challenged Caesar. Now Paul knew what he was doing. See, he was in a Roman court of law, so Roman case law ruled the day. Roman law operated much more objectively than Jewish law. Roman law required credible witnesses to back up any charges. So since there were no witnesses against him, all Paul had to do was deny the charges. The burden of proof was on those who were making the accusations. Now what's interesting is that apparently the Jewish leaders did not understand Roman Roman law as well as Paul did. And since the first now follow me here this is really interesting. Since the first charge was about violating Jewish law, the second charge was about violating the sanctity of the temple. Had the list of charges stopped right there, Festus had every legal right And considering the long messy ordeal this had become, he had every motivation to just turn Paul over to the Jews and let him take him back to Jerusalem to deal with him in their Sanhedrin because clearly this was just a Jewish matter. But since the Jewish accuser's charge of conspiring to foment trouble against Rome was added by the Jews as a third charge now this became a matter that only a Roman court could decide they shot themselves in the foot this opened the door for Paul as a Roman citizen to appeal now directly to Caesar Festus knew exactly what position he'd been maneuvered into and so seeking an easy way out He asked Paul if he would consent to go to Jerusalem to be tried there. Fat chance. Essentially, Festus was willing on the spot to dismiss any charges against Paul concerning violating Roman law by fomenting disturbances. See, this is how anxious he was to rid himself of this problem. But Paul was going to have none of it. God told him he was to go to Rome and that he would go before the emperor this was his ticket to get there besides Paul fully knew he'd never make it to Jerusalem alive if he was turned over to the Jews so he appealed to Caesar game over It was now out of Festus' hands. And in a few more verses, we're going to hear the perplexed Festus wonder to King Agrippa II, why in the world would Paul appeal to Caesar since Festus was ready to declare him innocent of any charges against Rome? Appeal what? Paul had won his case from Festus' viewpoint. Now in truth, Paul risked more prison time now than he faced with Felix. Felix didn't formally acquit him, but on the other hand, he had no grounds to convict him. Yet he still had to find a way to placate the Jewish leadership, so Felix just didn't do anything. And Paul continued to languish in jail for two years. Festus could have taken a cue from Felix and done the same thing this would have at least partially appeased the Jews and it would have saved him the embarrassment of sending Paul to the emperor having no idea what the charges against him ought to be or what he ought to tell the emperor of the circumstances and see, here's the rub the emperor at this time was the unstable and dangerous Nero. Oh, man. So starting in verse 13, we're told that some days passed. Festus had taken no action. So, no doubt, Festus was trying to figure out what to do with Paul. But perhaps not all was lost by good fortune. King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to visit and maybe they, much more familiar with Jewish problems than he, could find a way to proceed. Agrippa, in our story, is Herod Agrippa II and Bernice is his biological sister, both claiming Jewish heritage. Now recall that the former governor, Felix, was married to one of Agrippa and Bernice's sisters, Drusilla. Talk about all in the family. Bernice was the eldest sister while her brother, Agrippa II was the only son that was born to Agrippa I. Currently, Agrippa II was king over Lebanon and some territory to the east of it. Interestingly, even though he was seen as a Jew he had He was given no authority over the Holy Lands. Well, Agrippa had declared full, unequivocal loyalty to Rome, and this was not insincere. He loved the Roman lifestyle, and he owed his wealth and his success to the Romans. He was never married, left no children. There was always suspicions that he enjoyed an incestuous relationship with his sister, Bernice. But there's no admission of that by either one of them and there's no proof that this was true. Bernice played queen to Agrippa's king. They were always in one another's company and frequently they traveled together. At one point, she even began living with the famous Titus, the general who attacked and destroyed Jerusalem but they never married and she finally separated from him so great was the public hatred of Titus well certainly Agrippa's visit to Festus was to show his approval of Festus's commission as governor and kind of renew his vow of loyalty to Rome but in God's providence it would afford Paul an opportunity to speak the gospel of Christ to a king and a queen. Agrippa and Bernice a Jewish king and queen no less. We're going to stop here and take up next time with Paul's audience with Agrippa and Bernice.